0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET, this is Detroit Today.
1: It's almost Halloween and many of us have been binging on stories and media that make our blood curdle. We'll spend the hour today talking about horror literature. What do we find scary and why do we go out of our way to seek out those stories? I'll talk with University of Michigan English lecturer and horror expert Gina Brandolino, and we'll take your calls and social media comments. That's all coming up on Detroit Today, right after the news. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Jake Neer. I'm in for Stephen Henderson today. Halloween is just two days away. This is one of my absolute favorite times of the year. And today we want to spend the hour talking about the stories that haunt us. Horror, as a literary genre, is not just about scaring our pants off. Spooky stories have played a really important role in social and political movements and conflict over time. And even more importantly, they have told us about ourselves and what it means to be human in ways that other genres just can't. Through stories of terror and fright, horror taps into emotions and aspects of the human condition that force us to stare into our own reflections And ask some really hard questions about our anxieties, our fears, our biases, who we see as enemies, and about how we treat our fellow human beings. And it's also how we want our lives to look, how we want to be treated. And that's what we want to dig into this hour today. And we want to hear from you, of course, as well. What are some of your favorite scary stories, your favorite scary books Other pieces of writing that both scared you and stuck with you. What are your favorite horror stories? Why do you think that that made such an impression on you? And the number to call is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can also leave your comments on Twitter using the hashtag DetroitToday, and we'll work those into the conversation as well. And joining me to talk about this subject today is someone who has spent a lot of time thinking and teaching about horror literature. Dr. Gina Brandolino is a lecturer at the Department of English and at the Sweetland Center for Writing at the University of Michigan. Gina, welcome to Detroit Today.
2: Hi, Jake. It's great to be here.
1: So excited to have you here, and uh, I want to, of course, dig into some specific books and pieces of literature during the hour, but first, I I wanted to start by just talking more generally about why horror as a genre captivates us so much. I mean, why do you think that we love to be scared?
2: Well, you know, this is something that horror scholars spend a lot of time thinking about, and I'd say some of the theories that I've read that have interested me the most have to do with how the horror genre sort of blends with the mystery plot um the same way that we love to figure out a mystery that we that we are fascinated by mystery stories some scholars argue uh we're drawn to horror for the same reason at the heart of every horror story is a mystery that you're trying to solve so that's that's one theory that i've read about other scholars think about horror as a way of, as a kind of religion, almost. Mm. Horror, when it's supernatural horror, particularly, is a way of believing in something more than we can see, um, than than we can uh, detect with our senses. Um, and so it's the promise that there is something beyond this physical uh, realm that we live in. Um, that's interesting to me. Um I think the last theory I'll mention is there are uh, scholars who talk about how horror affirms our sense of what's right. If you think about most horror stories, what what happens is they completely disrupt our sense of the world. Um, They turn everything on its head. And then most of the time anyway, and we could talk about the times this doesn't happen, but most of the time it's all righted by the end. There's there's some scars, there's some damage, right? But horror, these scholars argue, is essentially conservative because it puts things back the way we know they're supposed to be. Hmm. And that comforts us. Or ironically, in, in the minds of the, this theory, the scholars that subscribe to this theory is essentially comforting to us, is essentially conservative.
1: That, that's um, yeah. That, okay. That's so interesting to me because it is right. It's tapping right into something that I've been experiencing a little bit differently about horror this year and over the last couple of years. I've been sort of binging on uh, horror lit myself uh, this month. Uh, I've been focusing on short fiction because I, you know, I don't have. Time to be reading 800 page books uh, as much as I would like to, um, but you know, uh, you know, there were a couple that I've I've read. Uh, Henry James, The Turn of the Screw, which I'd I'd love to get into more about that mm-hmm. one a little bit a little bit later. I'm also going through uh, Ray, Ray Bradbury's The October Country right now, which is mm-hmm. his collection of uh, short stories that I've also been really enjoying. Um, of course, you know, as always, every time around Halloween, books, TV, film. All of that um very different though, this year for me and how I'm experiencing those things. you know, usually I, i'm I'm gonna admit i'm I'm pretty susceptible to the <laughs> to the getting spooked. I'm very easily spooked, uh, and I like that., uh, but this year, I don't know. I, I think it's been uh, there are very few horror stories that have felt as scary as in the past. Um, and I, I think one of the reasons for that uh, for me at least, is that I feel like a lot of these stories, feel less frightening than what we're experiencing in everyday life in in 2021. Uh, Like, the problems of the protagonists that they're going through feel like, well... This is a pretty simple problem to have compared to that. And I kind of wish my fears and problems were this clear cut, maybe have this much chance of ending, uh, especially one way or another. Um, Are you getting that sense, too? Do you think that 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 has an effect on it? I mean, I think one of the like you said, there's this comforting aspect of putting the world back together that I think we're craving right now and has been oddly comforting to me.
2: Yeah, we haven't really put the world back together yet, have we? No, <laughs> uh, not even close. <laughs> no, it's funny uh, that you bring this up because, you know, I am I, um, teaching my horror course right now, and I deliberately made an addition to the course this year. I added Jaws, um, the movie Jaws, mm. and I added Jaws because of the mayor, uh, the figure of the mayor in Jaws, mm. who is so insistent on, on everything being normal, on having... The traditional Fourth of July summer. No matter what happens, you know, no matter how many sharks are in the water, and they really don't need more than that one shark, do they? Right,
3: um, right. Because, right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> because um, it seemed like something that my students could tap into and really identify with based on uh, COVID, the COVID pandemic, and they did. Um, they caught they caught that uh, right away. I feel like um, I, I feel like the moment that we're living through. Definitely gives us a sense of horror that is too real to be useful in the horror fiction way, Hmm. you know, Um, and there are are many stories about Contagion, many horror stories about Contagion, right? But, you know, the real deal is always going to have a different cast to it, you know, have a different emotional cast for sure.
1: You know, and it's it's what's so interesting about the genre for me, especially this year, I've been listening to podcasts and thinking a lot about why we tell stories and how stories work and and, and the reason for, for stories more generally speaking. And there's a lot of people who say stories are survival information uh, that, you know, this is programmed into us as human beings from the very start that we've evolved To talk in, you know, uh, very structured stories. You know, we go around telling stories all the time and horror. I mean, you know, one of the things that uh, people who write stories talk about is what is a way to make a character have an arc, right? To to change them over time. Well, you put them through hell. I mean, that is a really effective way of doing that. And what genre has a better uh, ability to do that than horror?
2: Absolutely. I feel like that is what is useful about a horror story is that it comes to an end and most of the time, not always, but most of the time that end shows a restoration of order, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's equipment for living, right? That that gives you um, maybe not not necessarily a path forward, but it gives you a model in the protagonist um, of somebody you can follow as you deal with your own trauma, um, as you deal with your own horror story. And the protagonist is so, so important in horror. I feel like Horror lives and dies by its protagonists. If you can't identify with that protagonist, if that protagonist isn't successful, not just in the way that um, he or she works their way through the story, but in uh, finding a place where you can plug in uh, to to him or her, then that's not gonna. It's not gonna work um, as a story. And I, and I feel like we all have our own, you know, sort of preferences when it comes to protagonists. But the protagonist is the most important piece of horror fiction, particularly in what you're talking about and allowing us to use horror as a sort of, I don't know, emotional or psychological tool to manage our own lives.
1: You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer. I'm sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. And we are talking about horror literature and the stories that scare us. Why do we keep coming back Two things that make us feel really uncomfortable, really scared. What is the, the purpose of that and what are some of your favorites? I'm talking with Dr. Gina Brandolino. She's a lecturer in the Department of English and the Sweetland Center for Writing at the University of Michigan. And we really want to hear from you. Tell us about the stories that haunt you. What are some of your favorite pieces of horror literature? What spooky stories have scared you the most over time? And in that sense, which ones have stuck with you? Maybe on a deeper level, what are the ones that you connect most with and why do you think that is? Uh, even just give us a title of one of the books that you've really enjoyed. The number, of course, is 313-577-1019. That's 313 577 one oh one nine. You can also use the hashtag Detroit Today on Twitter, and we will work those comments into our uh, into the show as well. And uh, Gina, you were just talking about the the power and the importance of the protagonists in in horror stories. I want to talk a little bit about the bad guys in horror stories as yeah. well. Uh, uh, again, Gina, when it comes to the antagonists in in horror films and and, and horror literature, I should say more more specifically. Um, you know wh- what? is it about the ways we think of them in terms of, you know, what do they say about who we view as a menace or what we view as a menace uh, in in maybe in society or just sort of on a personal level?
2: Yeah, there are so many ways that we can understand more about ourselves by exploring what, who and what we consider monsters, right? And in a way, um, the, the monster shows us who we are more than it reveals anything about it. Itself,
3: hmm.
2: um, you know. If you think about Dracula, for instance, you know, Dracula during the AIDS crisis um, of the nineteen eighties, Dracula uh, became a story about AIDS, became read uh, and and interpreted in various other you know forms as uh, a work about blood disease, you know, which Dracula hmm. is, right? But when you when you bend that towards AIDS, it becomes a a, a story that can touch you more deeply if you live in the nineteen eighties, for instance. Um, If you think about one of my favorite monsters um, uh, that often gets overlooked because he's in such an old story is Grendel um, in the um, early English story, Beowulf, right? Grendel is an outsider. That is all we know about him. That is really all that matters to the people in that story. Mm. That's what makes him scary. He is not one of them, right? What a powerful metaphor for how we think about monsters. Not us. Right.
1: And and how it applies to what we talk about and what we argue about today in 2021, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it, it's
1: yeah. it it is such a it is such a powerful and timeless uh, uh, tool and and sort of uh, thought of of what what we are afraid about. I think that is really 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 interesting. And and we do also have Daniel back on the phones, Daniel in Detroit. I wanted to to get you in here. Uh, what would you like to say?
4: Well uh as as you said uh you were into the October country, which is something I read uh in the eighth grade. I got it through a book club, but I am really been more terrified by stories where the monsters are very plausible and yes. uh and the the novel that really hits me is not horror but speculative fiction, and mm. that is um Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. When I first read that in the mid-'80s, when it came out, I could not sleep for three days, and I would be more interested in, in comments about who the bad guys
1: are. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Daniel, I, I really appreciate that. And I, I am uh I am still making my way through The October Country by Bradbury, but one of the things that I think so far in the in the first few uh in the first few stories that I've read in there are how plausible the fears are in in this book that in some in some cases, it's it's people just being people as we can recognize them that are serving as the antagonist. And in a lot of them, I mean, it is really about how our own internal fears can destroy us basically that it's it's our own it's our own fear that can be the antagonist uh, in in -hmm. those books. But uh, Gina, uh, you know, respond to what uh, what he was saying there.
2: Yeah, I hear the same the same comment that Daniel made from a lot of my students, that it is the non-supernatural monsters and villains that interest them and that terrify them more. Um, and, you know, there, there are a lot of horror scholars that would assume, that would make the assumption that such monsters mean automatically that these the stories that they're in don't count as horror. That is to say, there are some scholars that's horror literature is tied to the supernatural and only the supernatural. I don't believe that. I think we lose a lot of what makes horror great if we make that kind of division. Um, If you think about, for instance, Silence of the Lambs, I mean, it's a classic book or or movie, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Another one that comes to mind uh, for me uh, that I like to teach is William March's book, The Bad Seed, which also was made into a movie which has a, a very evil little girl at the center of it. And there's absolutely nothing supernatural about her, but, but she is a terrifying villain. The other example that I would point to is um, the, the great novel uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison, which is a book that is so many other things, but at the heart of it, it, it is a ghost story. It's a haunted house story. But the other really terrifying and terrible part of that book is, uh, it, it what it tells us about the horrors of the history of enslavement in in this country right and the the history of what what some humans were willing to do to other humans um really uh, it is a book that has the supernatural element the more terrifying part it involves non-supernatural monsters
1: yeah uh we got some great uh comments on social media about some of the books and some of the stories that have uh, that are some of our audience's favorite. Uh, Fifi Marie says the scary stories to tell in the dark series. Uh, mm-hmm. Earth Angel 85 says In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. A good example, I think, of what we're talking about right now. Uh, maybe not what you'd think of as traditional horror, but uh, certainly something that taps into real life horror. And speaking of that, The Quiet Invisible says Real Life Terror. The Indifferent Stars Above about Sarah Graves and her Donner party. Party, uh, and then Nate Danger uh, Cook also says, "This is an interesting one: the Bible, <laughs> which is an interesting uh, choice. Uh, uh, you know, not what we usually think of when we think of horror literature, but I don't think anyone could really uh, argue against the fact that there's some pretty terrifying stories in the in the Bible. There's no question. Um, and I wanna, um, I wanna talk a little bit. We had a caller that couldn't stay on the line who brought up Frankenstein, uh, and and th- we're getting into. Uh, back into this sort of um, uh, outside of real life, kind of antagonists, but it also taps into again this question, Gina, about who the monsters are in in these stories. Uh, you know, we have a literal monster as Frankenstein's monster, but you know, is is he actually the 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 monster in that book? I think uh, is an important question.
2: I feel like um, that Frankenstein is a really hard book to teach these days. Because I don't think that we have the same, we don't have the tools to read it the way that it was written, Hmm. uh, which shouldn't matter, right? You should be able to read a book in any age and and interpret it in any age. But in this case, I feel like the horror comes off funny because we're not able to um, to access that monster in the ways that Mary Shelley originally envisioned that monster. Part of the problem is that we have become uh, a culture that likes... Our horror to be visual, right? Um, part of the problem I have with teaching horror literature is that it never seems quite as scary to my students as the horror that they see in movies. Hmm. Horror de- literature, uh, horror literature, demands you to imagine things, to use your mind's eye, to you know, to paint these pictures. And you know, it's very hard for us to access Frankenstein's monster in a way that truly captures what Mary Shelley had in mind. I was just, I'm going to teach Frankenstein really, really soon here. And I was rereading the end um, of the book when, uh, when the monster is standing over um, the scientist uh, after he's died, you know, spoiler alert. (laughs) Um, (laughs) If if you don't know by
1: now, come on.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And he's this, he's hulking. He's this enormous, you know, enormous figure. And he's, you know, gross you know he's stitched together from various parts and you know it's very easy to read past all that and see a man standing over another man Mm. um and that that you're doing it wrong if you're doing that (laughs) right like that is not what mary shelley um had in mind i also think that we have a tendency um it's a modern tendency i think to identify with monsters it has to do a lot with how our culture has shifted um uh to I don't know. In some cases, privilege the monster, and in some cases, um, it's totally fair. You know, like I, but you know, I was talking earlier about Grendel and Beowulf, right? Like, I love Grendel. I love Grendel more than anybody else in that story. It's that this is a, I think, uniquely modern um, pattern to start identifying with the antagonist, and it's certainly what has happened in Frankenstein. Sure. Now, Frankenstein, the scientist, absolutely is a problematic character, mm-hmm. but is he the antagonist? I don't think so.
1: Mm, interesting. Um, uh, before we move on from Frankenstein, uh, Harry in Sterling Heights, we got to go to a break very soon, but I quickly wanted to get you in here because you helped inspire this part of the conversation. So, Harry, what would you like to say?
3: Well, you kind of stole my thunder, <laughs> but uh, you know, as a kid, oh, back in the 50s, I watched Frankenstein, the movie, The Rich Time, mean, I was kind of terrified. and It's kind of corny now, the backdrop, but you know, you're talking 1930s. And then I read the book by Mary Shelley. It's just a totally different concept about him being Almost human, as opposed to the movie where the guy was a monster until he, you know, he threw that little girl into the into the river. Mm So it's it's, it's a conflict of interest there, as far as how you presented the monster. But the uh, the book is totally different. And if everybody's seen the movie Frankenstein you got to read the book.
1: Yeah. Harry, I really appreciate that, and uh, and thank you so much for, for calling in and adding that to the conversation. Uh, we are going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will continue this conversation and take more of your phone calls and social media comments about the stories, the horror literature that has stuck with you, and what you find scary. Call us up, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Jake Neer in for Stephen Henderson today. I'm talking with Dr. Gina Brandolino, who is a lecturer in the Department of English and at the Sweetland Center for Writing at the University of Michigan. We are talking all hour today about your favorite pieces of horror literature and why that genre means so much to us and why we keep seeking it out. Of course, Halloween's just a couple days away, and uh, if you're like me and you've been binging on horror literature and other kinds of horror media, call us up. Let us know what you are reading, what you are watching, and what kind of stories uh, spook you. And, the, of course, the number on the phone is 313 577 101.9, and uh, just to start off the segment, uh, uh, Gina, I wanted to talk really quick about one of the the things that I've been reading. My personal pick for this October so far, which is a classic. It's Henry James's *Turn of the Screw*, uh, which I loved. Um, you know, and for listeners who haven't seen it, I would highly recommend it. Uh, although, if you're not a big fan of uh, turn of the century Victorian uh, English style writing, um, you know, maybe you could. There's other reference points and other adaptations you can uh, seek out. Like uh, there. There are very many... Uh, Film adaptations. I believe The Innocents came out sometime in the 60s, and more recently there's The Haunting of Bly Manor, which I wouldn't really call an adaptation, but that story is definitely very much built into that show on Netflix that a lot of people watched. I believe it came out last year. Um, But it's about a governess, someone who's paid to take care of two little kids who are orphaned and under their care of their uncle who has this estate out in the English countryside. Um, And the governess goes and it's really her. Job to take care of these two kids, um, and and really, I I thought the book was so powerful. Um, but when I went to look up the analysis of the book, I was really uh, sorely disappointed because I feel like s- so much of what was talked about was this. Question about whether this governess, who was seeing ghosts and seeing ghosts that she was convinced was after the two children in her care, whether those ghosts were real ghosts or whether they were imagined, and this was sort of a descent into madness for the protagonist. And I think that that ambiguity is really important to the book, but it's not what the book was about. And and from a broader storytelling, uh, you know, perspective. That's that kind of thing is not what any story is really about. it It's a important part of it, but I think what it was about was uh Henry James's answer to the question, uh, can you shield innocence, in this case, children from the evils of the world, from the ghosts of the world? Uh, and then that ambiguity, which again is important, takes that question and makes it so much more interesting and even deeper to me, which is, can you shield children or innocents from the ghosts of the world or your own ghosts? And for for someone who's raising two children during the pandemic myself, a pandemic, a political crisis, I really really connected with with what I think Henry James was saying there and then he answers, I think pretty clearly his answer to that question, in the very last word of the last sentence of the book, which I think is just masterful storytelling, uh, and I won't ruin it for people who haven't read it or watched the films. But um, again, uh, Gina, I feel like um, it's important. I think sometimes for people to not sometimes get caught up in in sort of uh, certain aspects of horror and really think about uh, what the uh, what the author is trying to say, what what they're what their statement is about the world and the human condition. And uh, let me know if I'm also completely off base about turn of the screw.
2: <laughs> you know, it's one of my favorite books. I'm so happy that that was the one that you, you know, happened to read. It's one of the, one of the best ghost stories I think ever written. Um, and, you know, uh, I feel like i re- I taught it about two weeks ago, actually, and, and my students got caught up in exactly the uh, problem that you uh, identified Thinking about whether the governess is a reliable narrator or not, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons that Turn of the, the *Turn of the Screw* is so successful is because it is able to keep us on the precipice of you—you um, you cannot tell at, there is no definitive conclusion to be drawn about whether the ghosts in that story are real or whether the governess is an unreliable narrator. It is a feature of horror that is called the fantastic. And the fantastic is essentially this. Lots of horror does it. Um, It is the moment in a story uh, in which you can't tell if something is explainable by the laws of nature or if you are really face-to-face with the supernatural. And in, in most horror stories, this is... A moment that can be held for a while, for a little bit. Turn of the Screw is great because it holds it the entire length of the story. The mm-hmm. story opens and closes and you're like, I just don't know. And it leads to a mood in that uh, book that you cannot shake, right? Mm-hmm. Like you cannot get out from under the spell of that book. What fun is it to decide that the narrator, the governess is unreliable, what what joy you take out of the reading of this book when you do that, you know?
1: Right,
2: right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. stay in the moment of the fantastic, or decide they're supernatural, but don't tell her she's unreliable. Uh, right, it ruins it for everybody. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it's
1: also a tool that's used for the 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 importance of the story, in my opinion, too. That that it's it, it creates that atmosphere, it creates that tension, and forces you to use your own imagination. Which don't get me started. I think that's sort of the that that's sort of the scariest thing. That that a horror literature can do is force you to imagine these kind of horrifying things, but it also it's it adds so much to the meaning of the book to me, um, which I think it's just it's just amazing. Even though the ambiguity to me uh, exists in the book, the the what he's saying is not ambiguous uh, in in my opinion. Yeah. But so that's I'll tell
3: you
2: though the other thing about this book that is wonderful is that I'm pretty positive that it invented the trope of creepy kids.
1: Oh yeah, right.
2: It, which is a huge horror trope now, right? But mm-hmm. I don't think it existed before *Turn of the Screw*. And those kids are creepy. Yes, I, I hope <laughs> yours aren't.
1: <creepy. laughs> no, no, no. My my kids are they're they're pretty cute. Um, but uh, you know, uh, that's the, of course. So do the the kids in the books start that way too? So anyway, yes. Uh, I wanna I wanna go back to the phones here. Jane in Huntington Woods. Uh, Jane, welcome to Detroit today.
0: Uh, hello. Can you hear me?
1: I can hear you loud and clear. What would you like to say? I,
0: I know. I just. Yeah. So Edgar Allan Poe. Yes. And I and the Telltale Heart. I'm sorry, I didn't expect to get on the radio. <laughs> the Telltale <laughs> Heart. We had to read it in high school, and it was it was very frightening to me. You know, he he. You know, Edgar Allan Poe was a genius, and he was more of a psychological person, and mm-hmm. he knew bad things and he the man that killed somebody buried him under the woods and he could hear his heart at night
1: mm. and
0: it was very frightening it was just all in my brain it was very frightening yeah
1: jane I, I appreciate that and of course some of the the most creepy writing that i've ever read of course comes from edgar Allan edgar allen poe uh, uh gina brandolino uh what what are your thoughts on on poe and what jane is saying here
2: Well, Telltale Heart is another example of non-supernatural horror, right? And I feel like Poe does a really good job in his short stories of giving us narrators who are unhinged and don't do anything that uh, sort of crosses the bounds of what is natural, but manages to be pretty unnatural anyway. There's Mm. a story I love called Bernice, uh, which involves teeth. And I think that's all I'm going to say about it. But there's... (laughs) There's there's nothing in that story that is supernatural, but you get to the end of it and much like the end of Telltale Heart, you're like, wow, this is this is a bad situation. Mm. This is an uncomfortable situation. Poe is also a master of tone, right? A master of creating an an environment. And and in his case, there's like a sort of cold dread that settles on you when you read Turn of the Screw. But in Poe, it's more it's 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 higher and hotter. It's anxiety. Right.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I do want to ask a little bit about sort of uh, the the ways that uh, audiences are targeted um, on on different sort of uh, uh, ways that, that, you know, uh, horror is written and who it's written for. Uh, I want to start with with gender. Uh, You know, when it comes to um, how, you know, the audience of horror, especially over time, but um, now um, with, with, uh, not to be overly binary about it, but between men and women, you know, in terms of, uh, what the audience looks like. Uh, and if you have any thoughts about the kinds of stories that might attract different kinds of audience, uh, you know, whether it's men or women or, or anybody else, you know, what, what is, uh, in terms of, um, the way that we, we write horror, is there, do you sense that there are considerations ar- around, um, gender lines?
2: So I talked about the importance of the protagonist in horror before and I feel like some of the most successful protagonists that we have in horror are these days female protagonists. Um and there's uh you've probably heard of the concept of the last girl which was invented by a, a great scholar called Carol Clover. The the excuse me, did I say last girl? The final girl. The final girl um who is the the one left standing at the end of a horror story. Um the Sort of seminal examples are uh, Sally from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Laurie Strode from um, Halloween, Ripley even from Alien. Uh, Clover uses mostly movies to make her point. Um, And and, in these cases, what we have is a female character who has been able to not just outlive everybody else, but sort of best whatever monster she is facing. What's interesting to me is as we go backward through the horror genre, we get increasingly fewer female protagonists. So hmm. if you think about, um, Haunting of Hill House, excellent, excellent, uh, Haunted House novel. Cannot recommend it enough. Mm-hmm. The Netflix series is a love letter to it, but does not do it justice. Sure. But we have female protagonists in, um, in the Haunting of Hill House. You have a female protagonist in, uh, turn of the screw, right? Yep. But then I'd say the next big mark we have is Dracula, and Dracula has some female characters. I would not call them the main protagonists. Um, Lucy and Mina. Mm. And then um, beyond that, uh, let's see, Jekyll and Hyde. I don't think there's a woman in Jekyll mm. and Hyde. Um, and then Frankenstein. Uh, Frankenst- the scientist has a, a wife. Um, she doesn't have a very important part. I feel like, frankly, I feel like horror got better when we started having more female protagonists. And I can't actually tell you why, but if I had a theory, it would be that there is in in no world are these female protagonists in any way weaker or more fragile, but we expect them to be. And that expectation brings something to our experience of a story. Um, It makes it more, uh, more, more suspenseful and, uh, sort of more antagon it's sort of it's it's more agonizing to get through the story. And I feel like this is a cultural element that helps horror be more exciting now.
1: Sure. We're gonna take another quick break before we get into it. I want to just read a couple of more of the audience's, um, you know, favorites that they are sending in. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, Amanda on Twitter says, is the horror short stories uh, "Click Clack in the rattlebag by Neil Gaiman. In trigger warning, it's such a good buildup of a monster tale. And then Mario on Twitter says, "The Perfect Storm." Another interesting one there. Uh, again, please keep sending us your picks for some of your favorite horror stories. You can call us at three one three. 771019 or use the hashtag Detroit Today on Twitter. We will get to more of your questions and comments after this and continue talking about horror literature this weekend heading into Halloween. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. 1019 WDET, this is Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. I'm talking with Gina Brandolino, lecturer in the Department of English and the Sweetland Center for Writing at the University of Michigan. And as we head into Halloween weekend, we are talking about horror literature, the books that haunt you. What are some of your favorites? Give us a call at 313-577-1019 or leave us those comments on Twitter using the hashtag Detroit Today. I want to go back to the phones here, and uh, this one got a mention uh, right at the end of the last segment here. I want to go to Wardell in Detroit. Wardell, welcome to Detroit Today.
3: Thank you. Uh, One of my favorite, I guess, horror poems is The Raven, you know, by Edgar Allan Poe, and that I learned more about him in in high school. Uh, But the other horror I'd like to point out is I guess from the book and the movie, uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mm. And I I recently saw it on YouTube, you know, kinda of really reinforced what I've already heard about and knew about it. And I really believe that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know, we all know there are people actually like that, you know. It's wonderful as Doctor Jekyll as horrible as Mr. Hyde. And I, I know people like that. But also I feel it's a metaphor for America. Mm. We have the Dr. Jekylls who are just the wonderful people. They're corporate people who do a lot of good things for all of us, including public radio and TV, who are absolutely just wonderful people. I lived in four cities and I met people of all different kinds all around the country. And some people are actually wonderful, be whatever color they are. And others are absolutely horrible, do mm-hmm. all kinds of horrible things. So I really, then when you look at the politics of it, and I won't mention names because you kind of know who they are, you know, <laughs> but some of those folks are corporate folks. That don't want to do anything for poor working class people, black, white, or whoever they are, mm. and others are trying to do the best that they can to have a world that we can all live in and, and appreciate. So I really see America as a metaphor for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You look at the yeah. When you, you, just one one other point: we just when you look at the abolitionists, I think they mm. were. Dr. Jekyll. Then you look at the slaveholders who were absolutely brutal, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're killing, raping, robbing, murdering, and just really took advantage of poor people. Then we have this country that's supposed to be all this great stuff about the American Green, the Constitution, all of that. And that's wonderful. At the same time, we're living the horror right now.
1: Wardell, I think that's such a great point. Thank you so much for calling in and, and offering that. And uh, uh, Gina Brandolino, I mean, Wardell is hitting on something I think we've been talking a, around a little bit on this. Is But, but but it, you know, we haven't really talked very directly about this. Um, and it's about what horror does in terms of reflecting uh, society and, and sort of on a, on a more macro level. Uh, I'm curious uh, what your response is to Wardell.
2: Well, you know, I, I love what Wardell has to say about um Jekyll and Hyde in America and that uh, the the main, you know, the, the main mechanism in Jekyll and Hyde is a potion that Dr. Jekyll is able to um concoct that makes him flip between um the two personas and Oh Wardell, would that it were as easy as um, getting America to just stop taking the potion, right? I mean, I feel like the horror uh, in the book is the potion. The horror in America has so much more uh, complicated, uh, you know, origins. Um, and uh, but it's a, it's a really smart comment and a, a sort of sad state of affairs, obviously for America. Um, yeah. I feel like um, Jekyll and Hyde is is a is a great book, and Wardell's. Uh, political read on it, um, is not one I thought of before. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to that. (laughs) I feel like, um, the, the horror stories that come uh, to mind for me when I think about cultural impact, um, are mostly movies, to be honest Mm. with you. And, um, specifically what comes to mind is, you know, the sort of instant classic get out, you know, which, um, Rocked, uh, I think not, not even just our country, but the world with what it had to tell us about um, race in America. Right. Um, I think, uh, you know, what, 50 years before that night of the living dead uh, made a similar splash, right. um, With what it had to say about race specifically during a really difficult time in our country, Martin Luther King Jr. had just been assassinated. Um, And it's interesting to think about, you know, is a throwaway genre for most people. Um it is a low bra genre. Most people don't even consider it um worth critical attention. Uh but at these moments when it can tell us something so deep, it seems important to pay attention to it.
1: Mm. Man, that, that hurts my heart to to think about that, but it's just, <laughs> not disagreeing with with the perce- that, that that there is that perception, but Oh, the horror can tell us so much. Uh, it can be so valuable from a literary standpoint. Um, I'm going to keep going down the the uh, line here of uh, people with their, their favorites, people who are listening. The freakiest story I read as an adolescent was The Little Girl Who Lived Down by the Lane. This is Alyssa on Twitter. She says, I saw the movie years and years later, but the book was so much creepier. Ellen on Twitter says, a sprawling and awesome book with really great suspense is The Good House by... Tannen arrive do i'm i hope i'm saying that correctly i'm not familiar with that one um but that is that is an interest very interesting uh suggestion there alan thank you for that i want to go to uh mark in pontiac mark welcome to detroit today
4: um hi uh, how's everybody doing
1: very good how are you doing to mark
4: i'm doing great i i i'm glad you mentioned uh, night of the living dead that's my favorite movie of all time but uh um uh, a really uh eerie story um Uh, that I wanted to mention was uh, The Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rees. Her name is spelled R-H-Y-S. But uh, it's uh, the retelling of uh, Jane Eyre from uh, Rochester's wife's point of view.
3: Mm.
4: Uh, She's uh, mentally unbalanced, and she's from Jamaica, so it's uh, got voodoo in it. But uh, what happens to her at the end is one of the eeriest and most horrifying things I've, I've ever read. But uh, I think it blows Jane Eyre out of the water. But uh, <laughs> I recommend everybody read it. And uh, can I mention one other book?
1: Really quickly, sure.
4: Yeah, um, um, Infinite Jest by uh, by uh, David Foster Wallace. It's about drugs, but uh, mm. the storyline that follows the, the out-and-out drug addict, uh, all the dangers that he's exposed to, how his past haunts him, mm. uh, and uh, what happens to him, and that was one of the most— Horrifying thing. I mean, I could barely read it, but mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that was another one. Mark, so, I, uh, yeah, thank you. for giving me a chance to speak.
1: Thank you so much for calling in, and thank you for those. I really appreciate that. Uh, let's go to Anne in Huntington Woods. Ann, you're on Detroit Today.
0: Hi, good morning. Good morning. I'm so excited about this conversation, so thank you both for this. Um, I just wanted to say that just yesterday, I just yesterday, I finished The Turn of the Screw, Uh, Um, and as you pointed out, you know, it's an older work of fiction. It can be more difficult for today's readers, and I just want to recommend another way to enjoy it. I listened to it in audiobook mm -hmm. uh, with the actor Emma Thompson as the narrator, and it was fantastic and so much more accessible, Yeah. so I just want to recommend that. It was it's such a great
1: book. Yeah, yeah, and I really appreciate, really appreciate that. Um, it's good. I mean, you know, as you heard earlier, I was geeking out about The Turn of the Screw, so it's wonderful to have, have you on and, and give that another shout. And yeah, I agree that, you know, sometimes that can be a very significant barrier, and in, in audiobooks are a really interesting way that we can experience those works of uh, fiction, especially classics. Now, uh, Gina Brandolino, something you talk about is the way that media affects the way that we take in literature and horror literature um what are your thoughts uh both about audiobooks and and maybe how that affects the way we take it in but also you know maybe also what is the difference in terms of how we experience horror um through film or through podcasts or or other media that aren't literature
2: yeah well thanks to ann for also loving turn of the screw not not enough (laughs) people we're like a little fan club here today yeah, totally. I feel like Henry James is somewhere being <laughs> super happy. Um, there, I want to. I want to mention that um, there's a podcast called Phoebe Reads a Mystery um, where you can listen for free to Phoebe Judge reading Turn of the Screw as well. And and that's what my students did. Most of my students listened to it, and I do think it's a way in because Henry James can write a sentence, but it's it's a five line <laughs> sentence, and I don't think we're used to that in America. Well, and and he,
1: I think he was dictating a lot of it, and it's it reads as if it's being dictated.
2: Well, you know, all right, then I'll stop after this. But Turn, of the Screw, <laughs> Turn of the Screw initially was published in installments in a magazine. Mm-hmm. So this was like, you know, it was like the Reader's Digest version, you know, of Turn of the Screw, where you got it month by month, chapter by chapter. And there were people sort of hanging, you know, on the edges of their seats, waiting for the next installment to come out. So it's funny to think that this thing now where we're like, oh, my God, these cumbersome sentences, I just can't even <laughs> uh, initially, you know, kept people on the edges of their seats. Right. Um, month. By month. Uh, but back to your question about media, um, like as, as I said earlier, I just feel like we've become such an overwhelmingly visual culture that it is hard. Um, as popular as horror is in a film um, perspective, it's hard to to um, to get us interested in a horror novel. And I think the main thing is. We have to be willing to imagine what we see, what what, mm-hmm. what we would see while we're reading. Like so, so for instance, take the movie Jaws. Um, the movie Jaws, which I mentioned earlier, I taught the movie Jaws. Okay, I think everybody would agree, even though it's a little bit older. It's it's a pretty successful horror um, film. We don't see the shark until 81 minutes into that 124-minute movie. Right. And ultimately, we only see the shark for four minutes of that movie, mm-hmm. right? So we are willing to do a lot of imagining, but I think we are more used to having a story handed to us visually, and we have to be able to exercise the parts of our mind that allows us to do that visualization mm-hmm. Um, Reading, reading asks us that all of the time. And if you are able to do it, so to go back to what Wardell was saying about Jekyll and Hyde, Jekyll and Hyde is a really terrifying novel. If you sit through those scenes of the transformation of Jekyll into Hyde and really think about what's happening, right? If you really think about the description, um, but you've got to, you've got to enter into it. There's a, a, Critic, I like uh, cultural critic uh, Rick uh, Ripatrizone, who said, "If we are going to be entertained by horror, we have to open ourselves up to being marked by that horror. Mm, right? Mm-hmm. Open yourselves up to it. Be willing to do the work that horror asks of you, because the payoff is great.
1: Yeah. And 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 I think that you know, as you said, you have to exercise this, but it, it also translates to film. Same thing. Some of my favorite." horror movies are ones that force you to imagine as you said jaws is a really good example i might get some shade for this but uh the blair witch project when that came out for me the fact that it's it's you 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 have no visual sense of the of of this like menace that is that is haunting these people and and i think that's what what scared me the most but i want to keep going with the phones here uh pat pat from illinois pat uh you're on detroit today
0: Hi, my name is Pat, and I want to thank you for this very interesting and fitting um, newscast during this Halloween time. I'd like to share a cultural thing with Professor Gina and you. Uh, Growing up in a Catholic Slovak home, we always had crucifixes in every bedroom. Mm. We always had garlic hanging. And this carried on even well into my 70s when we bought a condo. My friends would come in and say, why is there a crucifix in this bedroom? And I'd say, I think it's to ward off evil spirits, Dracula. And I always had, like, garlic hanging in the kitchen because my grandmother from De Blanca, near Transylvania, always said, you keep garlic in your kitchen.
2: Hmm.
4: So
0: and that affected me as I've gotten older to just feel a little creepier about Halloween and Dracula yeah. and the culture that I got from that. It's wow. gone to my children.
1: Pat, thank you so much for for calling in and offering that and telling that story. I think that's that's fascinating. And uh, Gina Brandolino, I only have about a minute left, but uh, you know, respond to what Pat is is saying there and 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 how these stories tap into real sort of, uh, you know, I, I guess superstitions or or, or traditions or cultures.
2: You know, my students just got finished reading Dracula, and they were talking in class about how strange it is that we still have this idea about crucifixes and garlic being uh, wards of protection for us, right? That that you know, this book is old. Dracula, 1897, is when it was published, right? I think uh, might be it might be a little bit off in the years there, but these these elements have stayed with us um, and managed to sort of Hang on in our souls in ways that still mark us today. This goes back to what I was talking about, about letting letting being open to horror marking you.
3: Hmm.
1: Dr. Gina Brandolino is a lecturer in the Department of English and the Sweetland Center for Writing at the University of Michigan. Uh, Gina, it was really a pleasure to have you here for this hour to talk spooky literature and uh, and why it affects us so much. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Totally my pleasure, Jay.
1: That's it for us today. Uh, Stephen Henderson is going to be back on Detroit Today on Monday, and we'll take a look at the next at next week's political elections. Du- Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan will join the show, uh, and he will talk about his bid for re-election. We'll also talk about the proposal on the Detroit ballot that would form a task force to explore reparations, and we'll also hear about some of the most interesting local races in the suburbs. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Detroit Today's associate producers are Nora Ryan and Sam Corey. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. You're listening to WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversations. I'm Jake Neer. Thank you so much.